So this morning, uh, I think what we want to talk about are those transitions that are so often required in life. Uh, it's unavoidable, I suppose, this thing called pain and suffering. And let me just kind of start by saying that not for a second is my goal here to represent what God says about this or what the Bible says about this. I'm not convinced that there's one cohesive voice in any of those places. But really, what for me, the win would be if we could bring to the surface your own thoughts and emotions and dispositions and attitudes on this very topic. Uh, the, the good and the bad, I suppose, of suffering is that we, we all know it. And I suppose to what degree really is a moot point because it's all relative to what we've experienced. And so what I want to try to draw out from you is just your own, I, I wish we were sitting over coffee where I could go like, talk to me, like how is suffering part of your story? And not only that, but how is suffering a part of your God story? Because somewhere along the line, you experience something and you, you process that. And I guess what I'm trying to bring to the surface is how are you processing that? And for those of you that maybe that pipeline of communication between you and God is, is closed or maybe even just closed on this topic, my hope is that we can open it a little bit. My hope is that however it is you're emotionally making sense of this, that we can get you talking to God about that again. And if you're so comfortable to talk to somebody else, someone you love, someone you're living life with, a therapist, then, then all the better. And that's not to, uh, in any way also to assume that we're all broken in this area and you're looking for my help to uh, solutions to your problems. That's not what I mean at all. But instead to just go like, wait a minute, part of what it means to be human is to suffer. And the fact that you're sitting in this place on Sunday morning means that you're a part of that uh, community of people that is trying to make sense of God and suffering and how those things fit together. And so it's not so much about what I want to say or even I think what the Bible wants to say, but where are you at with all this and how are you reconciling it? Uh, there's going to be no dignified way to do this, but I've got to grab this. So w- one way to think about this uh, is to think in terms of formula. And maybe this will help, and if nothing else, it'll test your educational system, but nobody will ask you what district you attended. So let's just start simple. So two plus two equals? Nice job. Okay. And the square root of 64? Eight. Okay. Now let's do this. 10 minus x plus 4 equals 20. What's x? I actually don't know. I'm, I'm giving you the problems. You have to come up with the solutions. Anybody? Negative six. If anybody disagrees, Roy's up here in the blue short. Come talk to him af- afterwards. Okay, now let's, let's maybe switch topics. Uh, let's go to English. When do you use then? And when do you use Then? Yeah, you know, you'd have to talk amongst yourself. I, for the longest time, couldn't figure this out, and my friend uh, Karen Ball finally came up to me a while ago because apparently I always make that syntax error, and she's like, Adam, then is related to time. E-N, then is related to time, and I don't know what then's all about. I just know that then's related to, to, <laughs> to, to time. Uh, how, about, how about this one? The fifth president is... Who? How do you know that? That's, and you have cowboys people on either side of you. Like, that just defies life. <laughs> oh, okay, now how about this one? Uh, God is in... How do you fill that blank in? He's in heaven. I, I think this is the word we got to get at. Here, here's uh, here's I, I, what I'm trying to draw to the surface here is what if part of what it means to be human is we solve problems? Like that's part of what it means. So you're talking to your grandma. She's 70-something years old. You notice that her speech is starting to slur. You're pretty sure Jack Daniels isn't in her mug. And so you determine she's experiencing A. And you do what? 
You take them to Scott. That's what you do. You take them to the ER. Or, or you're, you're putting your, your eight-week-old baby down for bed at night, and they always have a fresh meal and fresh diaper and a fresh bath and fresh pajamas. And an hour later, after falling asleep, they wake up crying. So you solve that problem by finding mom. The answer to that question is find, find mom. <laughs> what if part of the problem of suffering is we're made to solve problems? And some problems don't have solutions. Like, what if suffering by definition is when you meet that reality? Dallas Willard says, uh, reality is what you meet when your systems don't work. What if that's what it means to suffer? And what if part of what makes it relative, therefore, is the fact that we all have formulas, we all have these ways that things are supposed to work, we all, we all have skills at solving problems. Maybe the reason why you feel alive at work is because you're good at that. You can solve those problems, but parenting, navigating that, substance abuse, whatever, finances, cancer, you've met your match. What if it's about solving problems and our inability to, to do so at times? You know, my, my wife likes all things outdoors. I like all things indoors. Like, I like to hike, but I also like beds. So for me, it's like, can, can we hike 20 miles and then sleep on our own bed? That makes so much more sense. For her, it's like, can we sleep half a mile and sleep on the ground? Makes no sense. But I'm starting to come around to her way of thinking because I understand that there are, are, in fact, greater experiences and more memories that come from that. So this summer, toward the end of July... Uh, we, there was a weekend that we had scheduled to go backpacking with some friends, and then I've, we found a baseball tournament to go to. And so we, we married those two ideas, and on Thursday night we went backpacking. And for me, backpacking, my experience of backpacking is this. This is stupid. Why am I here? And then once it starts, it's like, I can survive this. And when it's over, I go, that was awesome. Like, that's <laughs> kind of the way the whole thing works for me. And then we went to Billings and got our butts kicked in a baseball tournament over the course of a couple days. And as we were leaving town, the, the, the boys, Teresa had to drive back to Billings on Saturday because she had to work on Sunday. But we were leaving on Sunday afternoon, and we were driving by that behemoth Shields thing in Billings. Have you been to that thing? It, you could do a whole sermon on that Shields. The boys were like, hey, can we go in there? They were looking at batting gloves and things. So we went in there and they're like, why would you buy them from here? They're half as much on Amazon. But then there's that whole local store thing. And anyway, we're going to leave and there's a giant Ferris wheel in that Shields. Have you seen that thing? And, you know, it's a, it's a Sunday in late July and there's this long line of kids and their parents waiting to ride the Ferris wheel in a warehouse where what the sites are not like Mount Helena or, you know, Mount Rushmore. The sites are Nike and swoosh signs and, Ameri you know, just clothes. That's, those are the sites. And I must have said something judgmental like, what a waste of time. And one of the boys, uh, they, they said to me, I can't remember who, who what we were walking down. They said, why do you suppose people do that? And I think because I was conflicted in my own worldview after going backpacking and then playing baseball and just the, the dichotomy at, at times of culture, I said, because parents want to make memories with their kids, but they prefer that it's safe. What if part of the tension in suffering is we like controlled outcomes? We love Legos. Why? Because we get to build the gi this giant thing, and it looks like this great mystery, but it's not. It's controlled. We get into the mess, but we always know the outcome is this. You go to college, you love God, you meet the girl who loves God, you get married, you live happily ever after. That's the formula, right? That's the controlled outcome. But what do you do when, when it doesn't work? You start the business or you, you, move the, you, you try the thing because you felt like God was telling you to try the thing, and then the thing blows up in your face. You gave 10%, and that everyone told you on TV that if you did that, your finances would always be sound, and you've been doing that, and your finances are a disaster. 
What if part of the issue here is this whole, we're made to solve problems and we love controlling outcomes, but sometimes the formulas don't work. And what if really the question that we're asking, and I guess this is where I want to point it back to you in your own dialogue with God, what if the loop that you're in with God on this topic is really this, God, are you in control? And what does that look like? And to another degree, what do I do when my formulas break down? What do I do when my circumstances go to crap? What what do I do? It's cancer. Divorce is imminent. You can't pay the bills. You didn't make the team. She said no. What do we do in those instances when when all of our capacity to control outcomes breaks down. And that, that's really what we want to delve into for these next several weeks. And we're going to do that through the use of a, a letter called Philippians. Now, long before it was a book in the Bible, and I think Andy Stanley's doing great work on this right now and getting himself in a lot of trouble in the process. Long before Philippians was this book in the Bible, it was a letter. It was an email. It was a text message. It was a Snapchat to some people that he interacted with in a place called Philippi, who when he was there, the Apostle Paul, one of the most influential followers of Jesus ever, he went to this place called Philippi, and he introduced them to the gospel of Jesus, which is simply that Jesus is freaking amazing, and all the other systems and formulas don't work as well as him, and if you follow him, then he'll make you better at life, even though he won't necessarily control your outcomes. And these people, they responded to Jesus. They started following him. They became a little church, kind of like us. But Paul's writing the letter, and the context is, Paul's writing the letter because he's in jail. He's in jail because of his faith. He, he was thrown in jail twice in the first chapter. He refers to being in chains, which refers not only to a literal jail, but also oftentimes if they wanted to double down on the torture, they would leave the handcuffs on you while you were in jail. So he's, he's had to make sense of suffering. But he's writing to the Philippians because they themselves are also suffering and their circumstances have turned kind of south too because they're following Jesus and also because there's a third party. And the third party is pointing out to the Philippians, how could Paul possibly be God's guy? Look at your life. They're a third party that, that, that is saying, wait, wait, wait a minute. Hey, uh, Paul, you're God's guy. Paul says, yep, I'm God's guy. And you're in jail. Yep, I'm in jail. And your circumstances in life, have they become better or worse since you became God's guy? Well, I suppose technically worse. Hey, Philippians, Paul's God's guy. Yep, Paul's God's guy. And you think that you should listen to Paul because he's like your spiritual father. Yep, he's our spiritual father. And your lives, since he left town, have they become circumstantially better or worse? Uh, worse. And this third party just went like, mic drop. And they've just walked out of the room and they're going, do you guys see what's going on here? Because they subscribe to the same formula as we subscribe to. If God's on your team, you're win- you win. If God's a part of your business, it's successful. And what they're pointing out is like, wait, wait, how could you possibly think he's God's guy? Look at your lives. Look at his life. Listen to us, not to him. You know, it's like you're going to marriage counseling, and then you find out that the marriage counselor is going through a divorce. It's probably not a good scenario, right? Or you're getting financial advice from somebody who's who's filing bankruptcy. Just, it doesn't work out that well. I've gained tons and tons of respect these last few months for AA, the number of people who are part of this place who have gotten well with their help. And one of my friends from there was telling me that when he was helping someone in his life with this, one of the things he said to him is, listen, every time you get drunk, you don't go to jail. But every time you're in jail, you were drunk. And he's just like, just put all that together, could you please? That's what these people are doing to the Philippians, is they're just simply pointing out that your faith doesn't work. Which is the same process we find ourselves in oftentimes, right? If God, then 
Why not? And I think this is especially difficult for those of us. It's hard for everyone, I suppose. But if you're processing this within a spiritual context, sometimes I wonder if it's even harder. Why? Because what does it mean to be a Christ follower? Among other things, it means that you spend a lot of energy being told and believing what? That God is in control. Which means those moments when you're suffering, when someone you love is suffering, like you'll learn for it from it isn't really good enough because the reality is if God wanted to, so says the rhetoric, he could intervene, but he's not. Some of you, your, your, your spiritual relationship might be best classified as one of anger because there was a time when God could have and he didn't. And the question becomes, is God okay with that anger or is he threatened by it? Would you rather you stuff it or rather you talk about it? And then there's another side of that coin. I experienced this in my own struggles with anxiety. Like when you're not angry at God, like why am I experiencing this and why don't you take this thorn away from me is the way kind of Paul seemed to speak about these times. Uh, in the other instance, there's this like, why am I such a pathetic person? Like, why aren't all these tools, all these adaptations that I've learned, all these ideas that I've learned, why aren't they working? There's the spiritual shame thing that happens. And so part of what we get to do with Philippians is, is at least look into this person named Paul who followed Jesus. How did he make sense of his suffering? And these people in Philippi who sat in cubicles next to people that went like, I just don't understand. How do you believe in God after the latest hurricane? We get to hear how Paul helps them process this. What the book of Philippians effectively does uh, is it answers a very human question. Uh, the, the Jews, uh, not all of them, but within rabbinic Judaism, there's a line of thinking that uh, I've been, uh, it's been helpful to me for years, in large part because I'm a big picture thinker, not, not a detailed thinker, but they call it block thinking. And block thinking says this, uh, on the one hand, we have evidence from the scriptures that God is in control, that should he at least theoretically want to intervene within his creation, he can. And on the other hand, we have within the scriptures, starting with the very first story, evidence that people are also in control, that they have free will. And what block thinking says is they both exist, they're both here, and we just don't understand the relationship between the two of them. Do they both exist? Yes, they would say. Can we explain the relationship between them? No. And what Paul is doing is in Philippians is he's going, you have circumstances, and there's a God. And how do we reconcile these two things? No one needs me probably pointing out that 2,000 years of church history has been fought over this very tension. All kinds of attempts to create formulas that claim to solve this riddle. But the problem is, when life happens, it doesn't follow the riddle. When it's your loved one, when it's you, when it's your infertility, when it's you that haven't made the team, when it's you who are suffering, when it's you who are broke, Suddenly, you're just stuck with broken formulas. You know, one of the things Paul does not do in Philippians, and I actually uh, agree with a guy named John Swinton who's done a bunch of work. He, he wrote a book called Raging with Compassion, within, which in the back of my mind is one of the go-to books for me uh, when I'm dealing personally with suffering. You know, the day I get diagnosed with cancer or someone in my family does, that's the book I'm picking up. It's a phenomenally helpful book. But one of the things he argues in that book is that there's this thing called theodicy, and theodicy is the intellectual argument to explain this relationship between God and circumstances. 
There's all kinds of apologetics, and some of them, I suppose, are helpful, but there's this whole intellectual, cerebral, kind of esoteric thing that happens within this plane. John Swinton, and he's a part of a community of people who say that actually that's its own form of evil. That sometimes, to sit next to someone's bed and offer theological explanation for why they lost the baby is actually its own form of evil. That you'd be far better off to just sit and be present, to hold the puke bucket, to just be there. Jesus, I think you can point to examples where he didn't do theodicy either. He was constantly blowing up formulas and paradigms and going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You've oversimplified God. But what Paul does do, and we're going to look a little bit more of this as the series uh, emerges, but you see this in chapter one. I, I think one of the key words to explain the way Paul processes this whole thing called suffering is the, is the word absorb. That he doesn't offer a complex explanation for evil, and I'm not convinced the Bible does. I love John Goldingay's statement when he says, the Bible never tells us where evil comes from, only that it exists and what God is doing about it and what we can do about it if we choose to join with him. Which does not mean we're going to solve the problem. It just means we can be present to the problem. Some would say that, John, that, that Paul's advice to the Philippians is first and foremost this idea of absorb. In 127, he says this, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Which could be offensively simplistic, couldn't it? But here's, here's what seems to be going on is that Paul, listen, we all have our shadow self. We all have that subconscious self. None of us really know how we're going to react when, when, when tragedy strikes, when suffering happens, when, when our circumstances blow up. We don't all know. We don't know how we're going to respond in that very moment. We, we talked a little bit about this this summer in the whole emotional thing. We, we have this shadow self. When the adrenaline's pumping, when the shock is set in, before you've had a good night's rest, you don't know. But what Paul seems to give us insight into is after he had reconciled, he's in jail. And by the way, later in the letter, he gives strong evidence that he hasn't just resolved himself to it. He, he looks forward to the day that he's not going to be in jail. So he's not just a wet noodle. But it would seem that he said, as I've sat in jail and tried to make sense of this very thing, my circumstance and God, and God, I thought you called me to do this and it's not working out. His very practical response, and we'll talk more next week, looks, seems to be exactly what he understood from the cross, was that he, he absorbed it. That he took a deep breath, and after life slowed down and his heart rate slowed down and he was able to get his feet back on the ground, he resolved that the very least he can do is figure out, God, what does it look like for you to thrive in these circumstances of mine? You know, years ago, one of my spiritual mentors, uh, Fred, I'll never forget, he, he had a real close scare with, with prostate cancer. And the time, the, there was this time I met with him where he was convinced that he had it. And he said to me, you know, my prayer is this, God, you've given me the chance to, let, to show a lot of people how to live. Maybe now I get to show people how to die. Which is what? I'm going to absorb this. Think of the cross. What was it? It was Jesus facing evil, both barrels of it, wasn't it? And what did he give back? Something completely different. And remember, this isn't a letter to a person. Part of what makes our, I think, journey with Jesus so different than, say, the Philippians. It was a letter to a people. 
which means they weren't just told, so go back to your room and close the door and stare at the ceiling and absorb suffering. No, it was a message to a people in which the message was what? Absorb it together. Absorb it together. You've watched this. You've watched people become ill and you've watched communities rally around them and walk them all the way up to their funeral. You've watched people lose jobs. You've you've watched people go through hard circumstances and there's this way where community does it together. Seems to be what Paul is saying here. You know, one of, one of the th- processes that, that I'm kind of stuck in myself right now is, and I think it's some of what even came out in this Acts series, is it was very clear to me what it looked like for, for Christ to thrive in, 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 in Teresa and I's lives, in our family's life, and even in our quote-unquote ministry life. It was very clear what it looked like for Christ, for Christ to thrive in our 20s. And I think I understand what it looked for Christ to thrive in my 30s. But I'm about to turn 40, and I think the question that I've been stuck in is, Jesus, what does it look like for you to thrive in, in my 40s? It's, a, it's, it, it, it's, it's the suffering question. What if Paul does he the dignity of not giving you the simple answer, but instead he just simply says, hey, here's a starting place. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So in just a moment, we're going to give you a chance uh, to continue your experience through communion. We have elements over here and over here, and if you've not done this with us, uh, we dip, we don't sip, uh, because we don't like germs. And there's bread and gluten-free bread, and there's a smorgasbord of options. Remember, this is what communion is. Communion is Christ's body broken, his blood poured out, absorbing evil, and giving back resurrection. And I think one of the questions that we have to reconcile with in this conversation is, is our understanding that the cross isolates us from suffering? Or is the cross a, a kind of a mirror that's designed to show us, here's how to suffer? Let me pray for you, Lord. God, I pray that dialogue would open up, uh, that... God, it's so clear that talking heads and microphones are only helpful to such a small degree, but Lord, that if this could stimulate honest dialogue uh, between us and you and us and one another, that that would be time well spent. Jesus, I pray that you'd you'd clean out some pipes, that some lines of communication would get opened up, that we would feel less of a need for all of our thoughts about you or towards you to be sanitized and instead to err to the side of being honest. And I pray simultaneously that we'd be learners, open to to insights that are currently foreign to us and even open to the idea that we don't have truth nailed. We love you, Lord. Amen. If you would like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online, www.narratechurch.org. We would love to hear from you.